Father, um, I think sometimes we don't even recognize the gravity of the things that you put in our path to address. Um, We thank you that you are um, equipping us and changing us and growing us throughout the whole process with every new thing that comes in our path. But for this church, we all pray that we would make the right decision. We'd make a decision in accordance with your will. And please uh, bless our time together as we study these issues and weigh them out. And I pray you bless Tim and Lee both as they present the issues and the history behind them. So we thank you for this, and uh, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we went over this as elders trying to figure out what is the best way to present this whole issue. And we're trying to keep it simple, concise, um, but address all the facts. So it would seem like perhaps going into the history of this would be better. So Lee is going to address the history of how we got to this point of having to make a decision about the statement of faith of the E-Free Church. And then after he gives the, the short version of that, then Tim will come up with uh, and present the pros as to why we should go ahead and agree and vote as a church at the upcoming district conference in May. Um, well, actually, we'll be voting as a church here April 25th, but our delegates from that vote will go to the district conference and present us as one church body our decision whether or not to accept or decline um, the new revised statement of faith. So anyway, Tim will do the pro, and then Lee will come back with a con, like why this is not a good idea. But first, Lee will give the background. So, sir. Okay, good afternoon, and thank you for coming. Is this on? Yeah, I think it's on. Okay. Um, what this is all about, um, in case you haven't kept up with all the details, is that in 2019, at our denominational annual conference in Chicago, the delegates there from many of our churches across the nation voted to adopt a proposed change to our statement of faith. This is uh, the second major time that we've changed our statement of faith which is not a lot, but the original one was written in 1950, and that was when the Danish and Norwegian and Swedish free churches in the United States all merged together to form one group, which you know as the Evangelical Free Church of America, or EFCA. And at that time, originally, uh, it was a 12-point doctrinal statement, and many of the things that were included in it were you know, orthodox doctrines that virtually every Christian would want in their statement of faith. Um, Things about the scriptures being the word of God, things about God being Father and Son and Holy Spirit, um, and about their particular ministries. And then items pertaining to salvation, um, especially just that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. They also had uh, a couple items in there, two or three, about the nature of the local church and the right of churches to govern themselves, which was so important to the founders because of coming out of a Lutheran background where you had more ecclesiastical authority over the churches. And, of course, matters pertaining to baptism and the Lord's Supper. But item number 11, I think it was at that time, was just about end times things or eschatology. And in 1950, um, 
the agreement between all those churches, the Danish, the Swedish, and the Norwegian free churches, was that they believed that Christ was returning, actually, not just spiritually, that he would return personally, uh, visibly, bodily, gloriously. And importantly, pertaining to or, uh, prophecy, they put in the word at that time in the original statement that he would return premillennially. Meaning that, as you read in Revelation 20 and verse 4, that when Christ would return, there would be a thousand-year kingdom. And then after that, one final rebellion of Satan, um, which seems incomprehensible you know, for one more go-around, but there you have it. And then the eternal state. So to put that word in premillennially and to take that thousand-year kingdom as an actual literal thing um, probably separated the free church along with some other groups from a lot of the mainline denominations and the old European denominations. But that was their decision. Um, And you'll recognize that year, 1950, as being right in the same decade right after World War II and importantly, right after the recognition of Israel as a state, a sovereign nation again, for the first time in almost 2,000 years. Um, pretty much the Jewish nation has been dust since 70 A.D. and 125 A.D. So prophecy was a big deal, and that was in there for that reason. In, in 2008, the Free Church really had its first major revision to its statement of faith. So that they went 58 years. And at that time, it was proposed that we remove the word premillennial because it was a stumbling block to people that didn't necessarily believe in a literal thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on earth. And there was a lot of debate about it on the committees and on the record and off the record. But because it had been part of the free church heritage for 50 years and all the churches coming into the free church over those decades had subscribed to the original statement of faith, it was no small thing to think about taking that out. It was just like changing the contract on everybody. And there was enough pushback at the time in 2008 that it was decided to withdraw the proposal to remove that word, and they left it in. Um, Nevertheless, the 2008 statement of faith was proposed and vote on it with many revisions, but none of them really qualitative um, or quantitative. Um, Basically, it was just a thorough rewrite, and we just would say it was a better term paper than the first one. It was just so thorough in visiting many other details of the Christian life, like evangelism, the pursuit of holiness, our responsibility for justice and care for widows and orphans and all that kind of thing. So many of the pastors, regardless of what their position was on the millennium, really liked the new 2008 rewrite, um, which passed. And at that time, all the churches were given the choice to either retain the 1950 statement or adopt the new 2008 statement. There was, however, one change in 2008. Not about the millennium per se, but more about, I would say, the timing of the rapture. 
Our old statement used to say that we believed in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, as well as it being bodily and personal and so on. They removed the word imminent. Now, that was a code word for the founding generation. Imminent meant he could come at any moment without any intervening events or signs. So it was code for a rapture at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, not in the middle or the end. Because people feel like if, if the rapture was at the end of the Tribulation, it couldn't surprise you, therefore we couldn't say it was imminent. And so for some people that was distasteful, but it wasn't really a game changer because that's a pretty small variant compared to the millennial issue. So it passed. That one change was made. Well, in our movement, and I think also at the seminary, but also amongst many of the pastors and some of the superintendents, um, there was still an eagerness and a longing to remove the stumbling block of the premillennial language. Um, and in this last 10 to 20 years, if you guys listen to Christian radio or Christian TV or follow blogs or whatever, you will have noted um, a real resurgence and a gained popularity in Reformed theology and some of the most um, favorite famous preachers that people have enjoyed in their Bible teaching very much lean toward a strong Calvinism but also a strong Reformed theology concerning end times things. Many of those guys tend to be amillennial. And um, I think you guys have studied the three or four different major views concerning the millennium already. Premillennial, return of Christ, an amillennial perspective where you say there is no such thing. It's just a symbolic for the eternal state of heaven. A postmillennial view, which means that we're in the millennium now and Jesus will come basically at the end of the developed kingdom of God which is gaining and growing now in this church age. Um, and then the premillennialists have two camps, historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. I won't go into the fine points of those, but those are all the views. On my handout, which I'll give you, I put, um, in case you've never seen such a thing, um, just a web link to a really, really short article that excellently explains those four different well, there were some people still itching to basically create a bigger tent for our denomination so that people would have the, the liberty of conscience in their theology to subscribe to any of those four views. As long as you believe Jesus was coming, um, could we not expand our borders a little bit? And so uh, there was talk about revisiting the issue. Concerning a change in the statement of faith, we have a rule in the free church that it cannot be revisited more often than once every 10 years. So that meant in the 2008 change that put it off the table till 2018. And so in 2018, it was raised again. Could we not change our statement of faith, take out the word premillennial so that guys with a more reformed perspective on end times things. 
would be welcome into our fellowship as members of our churches, pastors of our churches, being able to serve in our missionary fields and even on national committees and boards or even be the president of the free church and be premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. So it came up for the vote. And indeed, at the 2019 conference, it passed 78% to 22%, with 75% required. So that's all ancient history, maybe more than you want to know. But here's where we're at now, people. Just like with the United States adoption of not only the Declaration of Independence, but our Constitution, there was a constitutional convention in 1787, but all the states still had to ratify it one by one for themselves before you could really say you have a United States of America all coming under one form of government. Same thing in the free church. We've adopted it at the national level, but what is required is for all of the 16 or 17 districts to adopt it at the district level. So we're the Northern Mountain District, right? There's about 28 churches in our district and we're far flung across Montana North Idaho and Eastern Washington. And um, so we put forward this motion last year at our uh, district conference that we adopt the new statement of faith. We are required to make that motion because our district must adopt the statement of faith in its new changed form, or we will be out of compliance with the national denomination and in jeopardy of being repudiated or rejected from the denomination. So every district is having these meetings this year. We're probably at the end of the schedule of that. I don't know how all the other districts have voted yet, but um, we were required to put it up as a motion on the table last year at our conference. This year it's to be voted on, which is in four weeks, people. May 7th, Friday afternoon at Liberty Lake Church at our conference, this will be voted on. Shall we adopt the new EFCA Statement of Faith adopted in 2019 at a national conference? Yes or no? It's only two answers. And so every church is required to send their delegates to cast a vote on that. I guess the other important thing for you to realize, and hopefully you're all clear on this by now, but the rules say that you as a church can maintain the statement that you have if you wish to, or you may elect to adopt the new statement of faith. But you don't have to do a thing. If you don't want to, you can just stay where you are. Same with pastors that are ordained in the free church. If you were ordained under the 1950 statement of faith, or under the 2008 Statement of Faith. You may elect to stay right where you are, and every time you renew without mental reservation about every year, two or three years, you can continue to check the box 2008 or 1950 or wherever you've been. But from this point on, all new churches coming into our district that are started or that we're adopting because they've been independent for years or something like that. 
and also all new pastors that seek ordination in the free church are required to sign the new statement of faith. The district is in a different category than either pastors or churches. The district doesn't have a choice. We have to adopt the new statement of faith. Otherwise, you would have a denomination that was just so out of sync with some districts saying, yes, we sign, and other districts saying, no, we won't sign. And they didn't feel they could enforce it so strictly to require every single person and church to sign it. But they drew the line at the district level and said the district is the face of the denomination for all practical purposes, for most people. And they must adopt it. So this is a do-or-die proposition coming up in four weeks uh, for us to vote on. Lastly, I will say, um, the revised statement itself um, is not necessarily offensive. In other words, it does not say we believe in post-millennialism or we believe in amillennialism. It just takes the topic of the millennium completely off the table. And it says, we believe in the personal and bodily, does it say glorious? I can't remember. Glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really substituted the word premillennial for the word glorious. And it's just more of a generic statement about his return. So if you're premillennial, you could say, I agree with that. I believe in the personal and bodily and glorious return of Jesus. And you could sign it. But the silence is purposeful, and we'll get into that as we talk about all the reasons why we might say this is a great idea or not so great idea. And that's what Tim and I will speak to, each of us respectively. Um, It's a very tricky thing. You just ought to know that almost every church in our district is agonizing over this for what it means for the local church, but especially for the district family. Um, Because not passing it, is uh, near into catastrophic for our district life. So um, I think we could do a little bit of question on this if you have any clarification that you need about the past history of it. Um, If it's crystal clear to you at this hour of the afternoon, we can move on to, um, I think, Pastor Tim's presentation of the reasons for this. For the whole thing. So if you think of something, just jot it down. Yeah. There's a lot that could be said on the history of this thing going all the way back to the 1800s, but I'm trying to spare you. So, Lee, I really appreciate you coming here, and I appreciate uh, being able to meet with you uh, a couple times leading up to this. We've, we've spent hours together discussing this, and, um, you know, I, I have utmost respect for, for our district superintendent, and I uh, look forward to what he has to say. You know, I, I'm really hoping that this, this does not be become perceived as something adversarial. We, we agreed 
as uh, professionals and, and gentlemen to to do it this way. So, um, one of the things I want to start out with is to tell you that um, I've always myself had a, a, a pre-millennial viewpoint, and uh, that that'll I never I don't see that ever changing. You know this. No, no matter how this vote uh, transpires, I will always teach premillennialism. Um, I I see the issue here now. Lee Lee has the advantage here because uh, he's he's been thinking about this and discussing it and debating it for how many years now? Hardcore three years. Hardcore three years. I've I've had uh, you know just a few a few months to to research this and you know try to draw my own conclusions and um you know as as you know I'm an ordained uh, Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor and uh, premillennialism is in the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance statement of faith uh so is uh, eminence so is bodily you know the statements statement of faith was was very similar uh Anyway, I think that uh, this this is a topic that we really need to approach with a lot of humility. It's it's very much more important, I believe, that we uh, treat each other with love and honor and respect and and humility than it is to be right. You know, to, to feel like, well, I've, I'm I'm right. I'm going to fight this tooth and nail and, and have my way. I'm not really interested in having my way my my purpose here is just to present uh from what i see in my research good reasons to uh, to accept this new statement of faith and um you know we had we had talked about going through the different millennial views I, i believe that most of us have a pretty good handle on what the millennial views are I've given you a, uh, a, a handout there that gives those views. Uh, Lee is going to give you a, a link. There are a lot of lot of resources on this. I think uh, something that's really important to consider is the uh, statement of faith in its entirety. This is this is one item, and so I've I've given. I passed out the uh, 50, 1950 statement of faith, as well as the uh, the new statement of faith. But looking at the new statement of faith, uh, you know, it's it's very important to consider what is there, what is there before we even get to this to this issue of uh, what millennial view uh, we we hold. You know, there's a there's a statement of, about God. Uh, I'm not. I'm not going to read all these, but you know, we of course have <laughs> hold God in very high esteem here. You know, He's He's our Creator, He's our Lord, He's um, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible. We hold the Bible in utmost respect. We have a very, 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 very high view of the Bible in this denomination. The human condition. You know, we've we've sinned. We've rebelled against God. Only Jesus can uh, provide salvation. Uh, we believe Jesus is God incarnate. 
and I, I know I'm glossing over this stuff, but uh, you know, it's it's Jesus's work on the cross as our substitute. His work, his atoning death and victorious resurrection give us the only grounds of, of salvation. We believe in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who glorifies Christ. He, he regenerates sinners. Um, he indwells, illuminates, guides, equips. Uh, we believe the church is made up of those who've been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, we believe in Christian living. And then we come to the return of, of Christ. And the new statement says uh, we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming of Christ at a time known only to God. This demands our constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. And as, as uh, Lee pointed out, we're, we're missing the word premillennial. And I would like to uh, propose that this is, this is an issue of, of unity versus division um, in our church and in our district and in the, uh, the National uh, Association of, of E-Free Churches. Um, why? You know, one, one reason is there's, there's never been agreement universally in the, the Christian church on the, uh, the millennial view. Uh, the uh, early church was predominantly premillennial, but uh, I, I found uh, in uh, Justin that uh, you know, he acknowledges that there are other people who believe otherwise. And these people are godly, pious. You know, he, he essentially says there are there are genuine, actual Christian brothers who I accept as being uh, Orthodox Christians who hold views that don't agree with mine on premillennialism. Um, another another quote, and uh, Don pointed out uh, Olson. Uh, he was the second president. What was his first name? He was the, uh, the second president of the uh, American E-Free Church, E-Free Church of America. 20 years, long time. He, he was very influential. He, he wrote a book called This We Believe. And uh, in that book, he talks about how since the uh, E-Free merger happened in 1950. It was two years right after the uh, establishment of Israel as, as a nation. And that, uh, you know, his belief was that, you know, that was a very significant event in uh, end times prophecy. And that this denomination had come together, as he says, just, just at, you know, for a time like this, for a time just as this. And uh, he said that this is why this item is in the uh, statement of faith. But he also said that this will be until the majority no longer believes this, and then it'll be taken out. 
I can give you the exact words if you wish. And so, you know, he, he never would have said that about any of these other items. You know, we could, we could uh, brand him as a heretic if, if he did, <laughs> you know. We, he, would, he would never say, you know, we'll, we'll believe in the divinity of Christ until the majority doesn't. He never would have. He never would have said that. So you know, he he acknowledged that this was on a different level. This uh, issue of premillennialism. It's it's the uh, uh, millennial view has never been part of the uh, the church creeds. You know that that uh, lay out the orthodox view of Christianity. You know, we all want unity. Uh, and I've, I've said this in a couple sermons, we can't have it without humility. We, we all want unity, but we want it on our own terms, right? Uh, but, but we can't do that. And the point, of this, the point of this change is that we take that out. We don't necessarily say, as our district superintendent said, you know, that we have to be amillennial, that we have to be post-millennial or that we have to be one of the many variants of, of premillennial. It just says this is, this is not on the same level. It, it does not rank the same as these other issues that we looked at in the statement of faith. And there are many, many, many other things that are not in the statement of faith that I think most of us hold pretty strong convictions on. Things such as... Um, you know, baptism, you know, the uh, statement of faith doesn't speak to the mode of, of baptism, whether it's uh, immersion in water or whether it's sprinkling or pouring. It doesn't uh, address when baptism takes place. Uh, there's, there's room in the uh, EFCA for infant baptism. And a lot of that has to do with the uh, the Lutheran roots of the uh, the Efree Church. Uh, the Lord's Supper is another one. It doesn't. The statement of faith doesn't address the uh, the nature of the elements. Some churches, such as Lutheran, uh, believe that it's you know it's closer to the Catholic view that it's the body and blood of Christ. Others believe that it's uh, symbolic. That's not in the statement of faith. There's, there's room for a, a, a spectrum of, of beliefs on, on the Lord's Supper. Does it address uh, creation in, in, you know, whether the uh, age of the earth is young or, or old? A big one, is it, it does not address uh, the, the Calvinism-Armenianism debate. That's a big one. That's a that's a very big issue. I've I've spent uh, countless hours vigorously debating that issue with with people, but there's room in the EFCA for a, a, a wide variety of views on on that. Uh, there's nothing in the statement of faith on uh, the eternal security of, of believers. There's nothing about uh, 
cessationism versus continuationism in the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. There's nothing about eternal destiny of infants. There's nothing about the nature of the resurrection body. Um, there's nothing about the uh, proper Bible translation. There, there are some churches in their statement of faith that will say, we believe that the King James Version of the Bible is the only Bible that is valid. It's the inspired translation. That's an extreme example of something that I would uh, propose does not belong in, in a statement of faith. There's nothing about women in ministry. And we could go on. There, there are many, many other issues that are just not addressed because that's not what the statement of faith is for. The issues, uh, you know, you can, you can rank them as uh, first order, second order, third order, fourth order. Uh, you know, the, the first order issues which appear at the top of this list are things where I would not accept into full fellowship a person who does not believe in the divinity of Christ, for example, or the inerrancy and inspiration of the, the scripture. I'm premillennial, but I'd be glad to have full fellowship with somebody who's not. I'd be glad to welcome with open arms anybody who is premillennial, but is a historic premillennial or dispensational or within dispensational, uh, his, uh, classical dispensational or progressive dis dispensational. Uh, you know, there's there's very little agreement in the uh, Christian community and in the evangelical community on all of the details about uh, the end times. That doesn't mean that this is an important issue. It is. We need, we need to plunge into the word of God and study it and, and search the scriptures, examine the scriptures. We need to be able to discuss and, and debate these things. And that's what, that's what the change says, is we will, we will welcome with open arms anybody from, you know, as long as, as long as we can agree on these other things that are so important, we will accept in full fellowship somebody who doesn't agree with us on our end times view. But that doesn't say that we need to teach them uh, equally or that we need to adhere to one view over the other. It, doesn't, it does not mean that we are throwing out the, uh, the concept of inerrancy of, of scripture. We're still holding on to that. Um, this, I don't see this as something that takes away from the autonomy of the local church. I think this actually... Uh, strengthens the autonomy of the local church. It's saying that a church can choose to teach whichever view they, they desire. I think as far as ordination goes, and I, I think this is true, that um, a person will be asked to present all three or four views but to defend the view that they, they hold. 
Um, this doesn't mean that the uh, EFCA is, is becoming liberal. Um, there have been there have been people who are very much against liberalism who hold some other views. It doesn't mean we're on a, a slippery slope. I've, I've heard people say that. I really don't believe that um, that's true. It's a matter of unity versus uh, division. I believe we need to be able to debate and discuss, but not divide. And I do believe I could sign the new statement of faith without any mental reservation. I'm premillennial. This does not keep me from being premillennial. It does not mean that I have to teach anything other than that. It doesn't affect the way I, I preach, teach, or live my life. And I think I need to leave time for Lee. And I look forward to uh, hearing what he has to say and look forward to uh, the questions that we might have. There's a, another document. I, I passed that out. It's, uh, this is from Olson also. It's, there's this, co this concept of a signi the significance of silence. Um, this is Arnold T. Olson's book right here. This is a great one to read. And this, this is what discusses that philosophy of remaining silent on the things that we can agree to disagree on. I'd be glad to loan this to anybody. Um, I think I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave it at that. And we'll, we'll, we'll let Lee give the opposing view. apologize for the print. It came out real small. Like it didn't fill the page. It's supposed to be a full page document. So it, it verges on microscopic. Kind of weird. Can you read it okay? Those of you that are getting it. Okay. I'll need my glasses, I think. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, Tim, um, for covering so many of the reasons you know, to vote for it. And um, 
I mean, almost everybody agrees that that makes sense is when it comes to end times things. If you've ever been in a class or attended churches or discussed this with your friends, you know, at, at, at um, burgers after church, you'll know that among all the different doctrinal topics, um, there sure is a wide divergence of opinion about the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the great apostasy. Um, what is God exactly going to do with Israel and the nations and final judgments and how many judgments are there and, and where is the wedding supper of the lamb and all these things. And some people are very clear on what they think about all those different facets of end times teaching. And then a lot of other people just um, feel pretty agnostic about it, not that they maybe aren't curious, but they just don't feel they have a mastery of the topic. And so they're just perpetually fascinated. And when you ask them about the tribulation or the rapture, they'll say, I'm against the tribulation and I'm pro-rapture. Um, I don't know if I'm pre-mid or post-trib rapture, but I'm pro-rapture. Um, I think we've all been part of discussions like that. So um, that sense of humility um, is a big part of the rationale for. And so thank you for getting into that. Um, very few people feel like they're an expert in doctrine and certainly end times doctrine. Um, the minor minority would feel that they're good at that. So on this handout, I just um, listed, I, I tried to give it in some kind of a logical order, but I fear it's not extremely logical necessarily. Um, Good luck trying to understand my train of thought as I go through these. But they are all connected. And a lot of it has to do with prophecy, I guess, and the place of prophecy in Christian teaching. So these are a lot of the things that have come up in discussions over the last, really, 13 years now on this topic in our denomination. Um, so I'll just go through them. Number one, the change in the statement of faith is specifically intended to allow for amillennial and postmillennial teaching in the EFCA and credentialing pastors and admitting churches. So the language is neutral and it creates a big tent for end times doctrine. Um, but it is not innocuous. In other words, it is definitely intended <laughs> to make room for these other views. So tacitly, what we are saying is that in the free church, all views are equally orthodox. It may not be your favorite, but in terms of the team and the game that we're all playing together, they have equal rights. So that's a very American thing, right? You may be heterosexual, but the climate of the day is you will not harass or in some places even speak out against someone who is not heterosexual or those that would say that. So it's one thing to explicitly say what you do believe. It's another thing to be silent. And the free church does have a culture of being significantly silent on a lot of issues that people would consider secondary. What this is doing, it is putting uh, the issue of eschatology specificity about the kingdom of God in that category of silent, disputable matters. We will be silent about it. So it's purposeful. Um, 
and it is it is basically to be able to create room and to put a chair at the table of the free church for those that are amillennial or postmillennial. Uh, number two, um, amillennialism relies on an allegorical interpretation of Old Testament prophecies regarding the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Um, clearly, the premillennial people teach that there is such a thing as a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and would love to go to many Old Testament passages concerning the particulars of that. Um, but from the time, really, that this um, approach to the end times gained favor and traction from the uh, 4th century on, um, the way that you arrive at an amillennial position is to basically take less literally a lot of promise, promises and prophecies to Israel and the restored kingdom of Israel that you would find in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel especially. Almost all of the minor prophets address it in one way or another. Um, but the amillennial position basically equates, for the most part, the thousand-year reign of Christ as being symbolic, again, for the eternal state of heaven and final bliss with the Savior. And not so much any kind of an earthly actual kingdom in the land of Israel with Jerusalem as the capital or anything like that. Um, so those that are opposed to the motion just see this as a sea change for the free church because it's not just about the millennium and it's not just about Revelation 20 verse 4. It's about the whole Old Testament theme of the kingdom of Israel being restored. And your approach to scripture. As Tim rightly said, um, the free church retains its statement, strong statement that we believe absolutely in the inspiration and authority and infallibility of scripture. But when you actually look at all the particular prophecies in the Old Testament, concerning the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Um, to adopt an amillennial position really means that you have to absolutely see much of that symbolically, generically, and not in specificity. So timing doesn't matter, places don't matter, events described tend to be greatly diluted in an amillennial point of view because everything is just basically lumped in with the end. And um, so there's a concern about that, just your hermeneutics or your rules of interpretation of Scripture. Um, I think most evangelicals will say we are committed when we read the Bible to accepting it and reading it appreciating it as a historical document, as a literary document, but we read it and look for it in its normal, historical, grammatical, logical sense, and not in a symbolic sense. Unless that is patently obvious that it should be. When you're dealing with real poetry, real prose, figures of speech, those kinds of things, 
obviously there's a lot of symbolic language in the scripture and that's actually what muddies the water for all of us is trying to figure out when is it like actually literally exactly saying something and when is it not so that's just an issue to consider there's just a great difference in approach there and um, there is a concern for those uh, that are staunchly premillennial that that itself represents a slippery slope. If you are willing to be allegorical or symbolic um, and always tend to be prosaic when it comes to Old Testament prophetic scriptures, where else are you going to be willing to be allegorical and prosaic? Other doctrines can be potentially touched by this following that approach, and I won't get into what all those are, um, but it could be significant. So related to that, um, number three, just on my little list, um, I I find this fascinating, and um, you decide for yourself how much weight you want to put on this, but I personally do put a lot of weight on this. The first advent of Jesus Christ was attended with a host of literal fulfillments. Why not the second advent? Um, all of us enjoy Christmas time and every preacher in the land at Christmas time and Easter too loves to talk about the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that were literally and precisely fulfilled. That he was born of a virgin, actually born in Bethlehem, right? Um, actually rode on a donkey like Zechariah 9, 9. You'll hear everybody preach that on Palm Sunday. That he actually was betrayed by a friend, exactly betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That his hands and feet were pierced, right? That he was numbered with transgressors and identified with criminals, Right? and yet was righteous, that he prayed for his persecutors. And all these scriptures, there are quite a few dozen of specific things about Jesus from the Old Testament that we just say, look at that. Our God is a God of prophecy. Our God is a God who knows the end from the beginning, from the middle. And he is able and he alone is able to declare future things. Um, That is a major theme of the Old Testament. In fact, that is one of the things that that marks out our God as the God and the only God, and it's said often in the Old Testament, is there any God like me who can declare the end from the beginning? Um, Our God is a God of prophecy. In fact, it might be rightly said that the Christian faith indeed is a faith all about prophecy, and it is the reason why we feel convinced that the Bible is the word of God, because so amazingly, either in specific promises or in types, um, you see the fingerprints of God. We read the Joseph story and we say, look at that, there's Jesus betrayed by his brothers, right? Went away and became the right-hand man to the great king. All those things in scripture that amaze us have to do really with prophecy. So I say, why is it that we are so excited and so unashamed to talk about specific prophecies being carefully and precisely fulfilled in his first coming. And yet concerning his second coming, now we feel the need to blush and to stammer and say, well, you know, I know it says that, but that's not exactly at all what's going to happen. 
why the sea change in our approach to prophecy between the first advent and the second advent. Um, I feel that that was never adequately debated among us um, at the national level and with the superintendents. And um, it just seems plain to me that it's worth discussing. Now, whether this matters is another question, but I'm just I'm building the case as the case is built um, by many. Number four, amillennial teaching sees the church as the fulfillment of Israel and equates the millennium with the eternal state. Um, the reason that amillennial teaching got traction in the early centuries of the Christian church with uh, Augustine and others in, in allegorizing kingdom promises was simply because Israel as a nation was no longer on the earthly political geographical scene. The, the Jews were scattered all throughout Europe, Asia, and Africa um, because of their many persecutions, most notably the Roman destruction in 70 AD and then the final absolute uh, massacre in 125 AD. There is no nation of Israel from those times on for any practical purposes. Uh, many Jewish people did, in fact, convert to Christianity, but many did not, of course, to this very day. But to say that the promises to Israel of a restored kingdom seemed entirely plausible in the 4th and 5th centuries onward, all the way through the Middle Ages and all the way through the Protestant Reformation and all the way into the 17 and 1800s, all through Europe, even in England and the United States of America, it made perfect sense to allegorize or symbolize uh, prophecies about a restored Israel because face it, they're dust. Um, in fact, it would seem preposterous <laughs> to do otherwise, to claim that somehow God was going to reassemble and restore Israel in their land and restore their kingdom with Messiah on the throne. But I say, well, why wouldn't God do what he said and keep his promises to Abraham and his promises to David and his promise to the generations that were in exile in Babylon as he spoke through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel especially about a restored kingdom, actually. Um, we don't want to undo scripture and our approach to scripture because of the ground game that we think we're watching. We say, let God's word be true no matter what it looks like to me and no matter what it looks like now. Amazingly, Israel was reconstituted, right, in 1948. And, you know, one way to look at that, I do, is that it is a rebuke to the allegorical approach to the restored kingdom of Israel. Look at there, something that no one would have ever said could ever possibly happen, happened. Um, and so a lot of the questions that people have about the millennium, first of all, that Jesus would actually come and rule and reign in the Holy Land as keeping his promises to Abraham or David. 
as well as other concerns that people have about, well, what about those promises of a rebuilt temple and offering sacrifices? And that can't be, and how can that work? And there, there cannot be a millennium because all those things are problematic. Perhaps you've heard these things. My answer to that is, what's problematic for you is never problematic for God. And it kind of reminds me about the argument that the Jews used against Jesus when he taught the resurrection. And in the last week of his earthly ministry, you know, they posed all those hard questions to Jesus as he taught in the temple between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. They asked him, where did John the Baptist get his authority, from God or from men? And they thought they really had him there. No matter what he answered, someone would be mad at him, right? (laughs) Or they asked if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And he just schooled them on that. And he held up a coin and said, whose picture is on this coin? Whose image is it? And then said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what belongs to God. Fantastic. Well, one of the questions in that series was about the resurrection, right? And they came and said, well, what if a woman was married to a man and then he died? And so then according to the law, she could and would have permission to marry his brother. But then what if he died? And then she married the next brother and so on. And was it seven brothers that she married in the you know, theoretical case. It was the logical test case for resurrection they were trying to pose. And their premise was that obviously the resurrection would be an absurd catch-22 for so many situations. Because in the resurrection, for a lady like that, which of those guys would be your husband in the resurrection? It seems unanswerable and no one would be happy no matter which answer you gave. Ergo, there must be no such thing as a resurrection because it's problematic for us logically and practically. And I say for those who object to the idea of a millennium, which is detailed in Scripture, And importantly, and incidentally so in Revelation 20, verse 4, which I'll get to in a minute. Why are we not humble about this instead of saying, well, for me, that seems logically and historically and socially problematic. Why don't you just say, well, the word of God talks about it, and I can't understand how it'll work out, but there it is. So let's let's confirm that as a biblical truth. I I think that's an important point. The amillennialists do see the church as fulfilling Israel's role as the apple of God's eye, so to speak, because they see Christ as the root and the main branch of all things, and Israel as a part of Christ so long as they believe, but because they did not believe, they forfeited their place in God's divine a redemptive economy, and the church superseded Israel in that because we are the believers in Christ, the root, and we are branches in him. Well, it's all true that so many Jews did reject Jesus in the first century. Uh, but you guys that are Bible nerds know that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul excruciatingly goes through the details 
logically as to why it appears that the Jews are forsaken and have rejected Christ. He says it's only temporary. And even at the present time, there is a remnant of the nation of Israel, physical Israel, that has believed in Christ. That has actually worked out to have a silver lining and a blessing because their rejection created opportunities and blessing for the Gentiles who as unnatural branches are grafted in to God's family, grafted into Christ and into the kingdom of God. But he says, don't you dare be arrogant toward the natural branches that were broken off. In other words, the Jews who did not believe. He said they were broken off because unbelief, but they could be grafted back in again through belief. And that is true both of individual Jews who always have a chance while they breathe to repent and be grafted back in. But it's also as true for a Jewish as a majority, as a nation, to come to their senses and say, what have we done? We killed the Christ. And it says in the scripture, when he returns, it says they will mourn for him as for an only son and realize who Jesus really is. Um, And in the end, he says all Israel will be saved. Well, that is sometimes said to be all the church, Jew and Gentile. But I think in the context, Paul is very much talking about physical national Israel. And I'm very concerned about the stress in some of my buddies that teach the amillennial scheme who recognize the primacy of Israel but almost feel like it's the privilege of Israel to be part of the church and that they get to be grafted in to us and that we are somehow the natural branches and they the unnatural. Um, I want to keep the order in the scriptural order. The gospel and the Messiah is for the Jew first and also to the Greek. We as Gentiles are grafted in to the main vine. We are the unnatural branches. And God had a people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there is such a thing as a physical as well as a spiritual issue. Uh, Israel. Now Romans 10, 9, 10, and 11 are very much about physical national Israel and not just spiritual Israel. So we have a concern about that. Number five. Now this is about post-millennialism, mostly this point. Post-millennialism teaching favors a preterist approach to New Testament prophecy. In other words, regarding the details of that, the tribulation, the Antichrist, even the coming of Christ in judgment, as things that have already happened. And these are not events to be looked for in the future at all. The amillennial camp also does some of the same thing. Um, so for the post-millennial um, camp, um, it seems very strange there to reverse the order of things. But um, without blushing, the post-millennialists say we are in the kingdom now. And those things that you read about in terms of catastrophic tribulation and world distress whether it be in Matthew 24 or in the book of Revelation, they read that through the lens of history and say those are describing things that happened in the first century. 
and mostly in the distresses caused by Rome. And um, in a previewing sense, there is some of that language, and you see that very much in Luke. I think it's chapter 21, but not in the ultimate sense. To say that all of that time of trouble and all of that distress is first century stuff, and there is not that kind of thing in store for the end of end of times now, is very misleading, I think. I talked to uh, one pastor that said he favored a post-millennial view. And I said, so you think we're in the kingdom now? And he said, yeah, and it's going to get better and better and better because I believe the gospel will triumph in the world. I said, why do you think that? He said, well, God always triumphs and he always accomplishes that which he purposed. He has commissioned the church with the gospel and we will preach the gospel and the gospel will succeed until all the world is saved and then Christ will return. I said, but the Bible talks about great and persistent opposition to the church. Jesus said, they hated me, they will hate you. And that in the end, it will be so hot and terrible (laughs) that no flesh would be saved if there was not an interruption from the Lord. He said, well, you're too pessimistic. I said, I think that is the theme of Scripture. I believe that the consistent teaching of Christ and the apostles from Matthew right on through Revelation is that the gospel is glorious and it will succeed for those who believe. But the church and believers will always exist against a dark backdrop of a world that is anti-Christ and anti-God who will always hate us and in the end will rage against us to seek to destroy us as Satan always sought to destroy Christ. And if it were not for the second advent of Christ to interrupt that, they would prevail and just wipe us clean from the face of the earth. That is the New Testament that I know and teach. And post-millennialism is the polar opposite of that. So I understand, and many of my friends who are ardent premillennialists understand about being humble and gentlemen about doctrine, um, but certainly a premillennial view and a postmillennial view are at opposite ends of the spectrum and are mutually exclusive doctrines. Which is true and what does the Bible teach? I also believe it has great practical and pastoral implications, which I'll get to later. Uh, number six, I think I've already touched on. In number seven, just emphasizing the place of Israel in God's scheme, um, I just quoted this uh, important passage from Romans eleven twenty eight and 29. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul was considered the apostle to the Gentiles and that Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Now, there are many notable exceptions to that. Uh, so it's a real generalization. But Paul was always eager to manifest, or I'm sorry, magnify his ministry to the Gentiles and their right as full participants in the kingdom. But he was also so careful in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to defend Israel, even unbelieving Israel, 
and to let people know that God will never forget them and that in the end there will be a great turnabout. So this is a great, right? Romans eleven twenty eight and 29, in that context, Paul wrote, from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. One reason we say that the kingdom, the actual manifestation of a kingdom of Christ, a millennium in Israel with Jerusalem as the center and with all the prophecies of the Old Testament coming true, actually, literally, and specifically, is because God's promise to Abraham and also his promise to David are unilateral covenants. They are unconditional covenants. God said to Abraham, Abraham, come and go to a land that I will show you and I will make you great and I will make nations and kings to come out of you and so on and so forth. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was a unilateral call. It was not conditioned upon any performance on Abraham's part, although he did perform. He got up and he went right on his exodus to Canaan. But it is an unconditional unilateral covenant. And God confirmed that covenant by himself while Abraham was sleeping. can't remember which chapter of Genesis this is. 15 maybe. Um, as was the custom of the day, there was a slaughtered uh, cow or something and they cut it in half and the two halves laid side by side separated And in ratifying the covenant, the parties of the covenant would walk between the two halves of the animal. So much saying, so be it to me, right, if I do not keep my promise. Who walked through that? God did while Abraham slept. And there's the actual illustration of the proof, you know, that this is an unconditional unilateral covenant. Same with the promise to David to give him an enduring Dynasty, and that there will always be a son of David on the throne forever. And I think it says forever several times in 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. A unilateral covenant to David to always have an enduring kingdom and an heir on the throne, Jesus being the fulfillment of that. So we say, those who argue so ardently for premillennialism and against the postmillennial and amillennial schemes, that God keeping these promises actually and in detail is a matter of his character. And we are not squeamish about saying we can be exacting about these things and believe the word of the Lord and not feel the need to allegorize. Number eight, this is my language and If you find it to be in error, I don't claim that I'm speaking ex-cathedral or anything. It's just my opinion. But I think it's not too much to say that the kingdom of God is the golden thread of Scripture with the redemption of man as its corollary theme. The Bible begins with God creating his world, and this is my Father's world. He is in charge And in that first chapter when he created male and female, he gave them dominion over the earth. But we have dominion over the earth as um, regents under his dominion. 
in the ruling and the reigning on the earth is a matter of the authority and the blessing and the glory of God from Genesis 1 onward. And even when he called Israel as a theocracy and they had no king, you know the story in Samuel and also with Gideon and Judges where they called out for a king and God said, I'm their king. When they clamored so hard and insisted that Samuel anoint someone as king, a human king, he went to the Lord and said, what am I to do about this? And God said, don't feel bad. They are not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me. But you go tell them if they want a king, here's how it's going to be. In God's permissive will, he granted them a king. It was Sam, uh, Saul who failed in so many ways and was uh, disqualified him and his sons as being the dynasty that would prevail. But who succeeded Saul? David. And God called David a man after his own heart and promised him an eternal kingdom. That's a pretty great promise to a man and to his family, to a nation that wasn't supposed to have a king in the first place. But God in his exquisite wisdom permitted them a king that they could touch and feel and perhaps hope in. Jesus Christ is that descendant of David. And in his amazing humor, do you know that the Messiah is actually God as king, but also the descendant of David as a human king? There's some wry humor in that, people. But the crescendo of Old Testament history is David finally overcoming all of the enemies of Israel and having peace in the land and sitting on his throne and being well established as the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And if there could be a higher pinnacle than that, it could only be said that it was Solomon who then built the temple that David always wanted to build and the glory of God filled that temple. I say that's the highest point of Israel's history. Kingdom realized. Well, they had a slippery slope. <laughs> I mean, that was the peak, and it just blew apart shortly after that, right? Solomon himself had many personal issues. And with his sons, the kingdom was divided, right? North and south. And it was downhill from there, right? For the next literally four centuries until... Uh, 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was sacked and sieged and burned and, and Jews taken captive to Babylon, which is the lowest point of Israel's history. And at that lowest point, all the prophets came and said, cheer up. You think it's over, but it is never over with God. Days are coming, says the Lord, and you can read this in Ezekiel 36 and 37, when I will restore the fortunes of Israel and I will bring you back in the land. You will rebuild your temple. My servant David will rule over you. You will be blessed in the field, blessed in your health, blessed in your children. The nations will stream into Jerusalem and seek the Lord in his temple. It's going to be that great. 
kingdom promise is the heartbeat of the major prophets. And so, from my perspective, the thread of who is on the throne and the rule of God is the golden thread of Scripture from Genesis all the way through Judges and Kings, all the way through to the destruction of Israel, all the way through the prophets. And were the people not electrified when Jesus stepped onto the earthly stage, right, in 30 AD and said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And everybody knew what he meant. All that God had promised to do to restore the kingdom in the prophets, he said, was about to come true. Now, I find in this current generation of preachers that there are few, and especially among the younger guys, I will say, who are very focused on being missional and reaching our neighbor for Christ, which is a great thing. But I find very few of the young men are able to articulate the Old Testament portrait of the kingdom of God restored. But it is not rocket science. If you look for it and just go back and scan through the prophets and look for all the promises where God said, I'm going to restore you again to your land with your king and with peace and health, what are the components of that kingdom? you will find about a dozen items that rise to the top and are repeated over and over and over and over. You cannot miss it and you cannot not know this unless you don't look and don't care. But when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, he meant the restored kingdom. And everybody then knew exactly what that meant. Sorry, I'm passionate about this. My concern is that when you diminish the doctrine of kingdom and strip it of its specific terms, you you have just stripped the tree of its leaves and fruit when it comes to biblical teaching of what Jesus came to be and do and what they understood his mission to be and what yet lies around the corner for us as a world and for us as a church. Um, There is much to know and much to appreciate there. So number nine, right? It's a no-brainer. The ministry of Jesus began and ended with the word about the kingdom. And, of course, there is where he said in Mark, and it's also in Matthew and Luke, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe the gospel. That's at the beginning of his ministry, but the kingdom of God also is like a bookend and is at the end of his earthly ministry. And I just object to this idea that the kingdom of God could not be included in our statement of faith. As a personal matter, you guys, in Chicago in 2019, when they ran this version bias that we're voting on now, I said, as an advocate for these things, and as a mouthpiece for some of my premillennial brothers, who were so disturbed that this was being completely written out of the statement of faith. I said, could you not at least put the word kingdom in there? That Jesus is coming to restore the kingdom of God. I said, that might satisfy a lot of people that we're not just throwing out the whole baby with the bathwater here. And I was told from the platform, no, we cannot put the word kingdom in there. That will make it worse yet. 
and it is too problematic. And I, as a teacher of the word of God, you know, as inept as I am and lacking in education as I am, I'm offended by that. That in trying to please somebody, we are blushing and embarrassed to put the kingdom of God in our language about eschatology. Jesus himself said that that is what he was here to do. He said at the beginning of his ministry, and look here, he says it at the end. You're all familiar with this passage. But in Acts chapter 1, you know, just before his ascension, um, the apostles were burning to know when he was going to get on with it and begin to rule and to reign. And of course, they had quite a picture of a kingdom of God manifested in the here and now, nationally, politically, right? Even militarily, I'm sure, in their thinking. Where's the judgment for the enemies of God? So, I just quote here from verse 3 and again in verse 6. You're well familiar with Acts. To these also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. I marvel at that. I just think, how can it be that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God with them for 40 days before his ascension? And somehow in our generation, we are going to say that we are so confused and muddle-headed about it that we prefer to say nothing except Jesus is coming again. We all agree Jesus is coming again, but I believe we can say so much more, and I believe our doctrinal statement could be more than just a children's song about the return of Christ and us being with him. It is profound that he is coming again, but coming again, why and for what? How, when, where, for who? Can you tell me anything at all about it? No, we will not say because it might offend some. That to me is what this new doctrinal statement is about. In verse 6 of Acts 1, Didn't I preach this sermon here a few weeks ago? When's the last time I preached here? Maybe I preached it last year. I can't remember. I know I've done this sermon with you guys. Well, anyway, so awesome. Verse 6. So you you know the picture, like they're all standing with him. I guess they're on the Mount of Olives or whatever they are. And So when they had come together, it says they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Not the kingdom generically, but kingdom to Israel, like they got it to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Jesus said, well, you don't get to know that now. He didn't say there was no such thing as a kingdom or a kingdom for Israel. He said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons, which the father has fixed by his own authority. Well, there he gave them the great commission in so many words that they would receive power and be his witnesses. But we believe the real question is, is this a serious question and is this a serious topic? Not just for the Jews, not just as something that was potentially um, forfeited by them and then therefore disappears. Not something as only for the church either, but for both and all of us and really according to the prophets. Peter mentioned it here in my point number 10 In his second sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 3, 
he refers specifically about the second coming of Christ and the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Notice it's the same word, restore, that we just read in chapter 1, verse 6. This is where Peter healed that lame man where he said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the guy did. And everybody was amazed because they knew this guy. He'd been a beggar for years probably. And everybody was clinging on to Peter and they just thought he was the greatest thing ever. And he says, this isn't about me. This is the name of Jesus that did this. And in that sermon, he makes this mention about where Jesus is and about his return and about the kingdom. He said to his audience there in verse 19, chapter 3, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until... The period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Real emphasis on that code phrase, the restoration of all things, which we easily read, but what that encapsulates is all that kingdom tapestry in the Old Testament prophets about what exactly that meant for the kingdom to be restored. It meant not only restoration for Israel, but restoration for the whole earth. And you see that language in Isaiah 9 and 11 especially. That the nations will beat their swords into plowshares. And that everyone will resort to the root of Jesse. He will not be just the Christ for Israel. He will be the Christ for the world. Well, is that just the heavenly state or is that stuff that's going to actually go down in Israel? That's the great debate, right? And the question is, does it even matter? So my pastoral concerns, you know, in terms of that, does it really matter? What is the practical thing? Number one, for post-millennialism, it's one thing to say, I will love my brother who believes in a post-millennial eschatology. I will not persecute him. I will not stone him. I will not burn him at the stake. I will not say he is not a Christian. But that is quite another thing for me to say. I will have him in my pulpit in my church teaching post-millennialism. I personally, not down with that. For our denomination, I would have preferred we don't go that direction. Because the post-millennialist preacher will say, we're in the kingdom now. Not just in a down payment sense, but like in the whole payment sense. Like it is growing like that little mustard plant that started in a tiny seed and it's going to fill the whole earth someday. Things are going to get better and better and better and then Jesus will come. And I think pastorally that is problematic. In fact, I don't know where we are in God's timeline but it just seems a little bit ironic to me as the worth plummets full speed ahead towards self-destruction. Not only mutually assured self-destruction in the nuclear bomb sense, but socially even the best nations on the face of the earth 
are imploding. And the violence and the insanity and the anarchy and the bloodshed is right around the corner, I think. And I am telling you, it is going to just seem absurd to preach to the people of God in that context, which I believe is imminent, that we are in the millennium now, that it is kingdom now. It is not kingdom now. We are in the kingdom because he is our king as believers and as churches. But in a worldwide actual sense, no, sir. It will be hell on earth until the Lord himself descends with a shout, right? And does away with his adversaries and meets out fierce judgment. It's what we read about in Revelation 19, right? And I just feel that if we are teaching people um, an optimistic view of world progress in kingdom now theology, we are misrepresenting God and we are leaving our people ill-prepared for what is just around the corner. Personal opinion, but I'm preaching to myself. It makes me happy. So, um, Just the quotes there from Jesus and John about that. Jesus, John 15, they hated me, they will hate you. And Paul talking about the end times in 2 Timothy 3, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he spells out what he means by that. This optimism is unwarranted by the tone of New Testament teaching regarding persecution. My objection about amillennialism is it has a different view of prophecy, prefers allegory to a more straightforward interpretation, and also... Um, the place of Israel in their scheme. Now, there are some people who say that they are amillennial or amillennial-ish and that they have a great respect for the place of Israel. But I rarely hear that fleshed out. What I hear them telling our people in our churches is that we are Israel. And I'm very concerned about this. Um, Historically, um, Christendom... First the Catholics, but then also the Reformers in the 16th century. 4,000 year plus were happy to persecute and torment Jews as the killers of Christ. And the Jews know that. To this day, they know that. They knew it right up through World War II, they knew that. And I think most evangelicals really felt like it was a feather in our cap to be champions for Israel, especially in 1948, when they were granted nationhood and recognized by the United Nations. There was a Zionistic movement that began in the late 1800s, and Jews were streaming into Israel all the way up till World War II. And all of that really drove prophetic thinking, prophetic conferences, and really fueled the possibility of even having premillennialism in a doctrinal statement. But I find now... Again, although the amillennialists say they are not anti-Israel, I do find in the present generation of young people that it is very fashionable to champion the Palestinians 
as sorely oppressed and persecuted and dominated by bad Israel. And there is again a, a kind of an anti-Zionism, if you don't want to say anti-Semitism, that is rampant in Europe and in the United States. Even in our presidential administration, there's a great sea change in attitude toward Israel between Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, and the new administration, which is now again sending money to the Palestinians, which is forbidden by law. Now, we don't have to concern ourselves with the politics of that, but we do need to think as Christians, what is my attitude toward the Jews, toward Jewish people generally and about God's prophetic scheme? I, I guess I will be happy to say, and I may be considered by some to be naive and inarticulate in this, that I champion the promises of God to Israel. I long for the day, as the Apostle Paul did, when they would all come around and smell the roses and realize Jesus is the Christ. That I want to be part of the people that bless the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because God did say, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I have always been that Amer- felt glad that America was on the side of the Jews, not just for pity's sake because of the Holocaust of World War II, but for God's sake because of the covenants and the promises. Um, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history or prophecy in that stuff. I'm done. <laughs> but I'm just telling you that's the other side. <laughs> And I could give you the other side, too. We had a great elders meeting, and actually all of us talked about all the fantastic reasons for voting for this as a matter of humility and reality and how hard prophecy is and all the other things. But, but there is a, two sides of this coin. And so we felt like, as brothers, you deserve to hear all sides, um, because it is this church that will send delegates to vote at our district conference, yes or no. It's not me sending you. It's not Tim sending you. It's not even really the elder boards sending the delegation that they want. We really want this church to wrestle with this and come to a decision on how you want to proceed. And um, you know what? There's probably about 100 more points to make, both pro and con. Um, there truly are. But that's... That's what I can give you today. And the link is there um, about the four major views on the millennium, if you want to go Google that. But there are quite a few good articles that kind of get into the ins and outs of this. And you will recognize much of what Tim and I have talked about in all of the Googling that you will do. This is being recorded, um, so I, I will come out to you guys and we'll get a chance to converse. Just to let you know, we're, we're a little over time. Um, somebody got excited, and I appreciate everything that was said. All right, Larry Boggs, go ahead. I'll go up front so you can kind of all see me here. I have uh, struggled with this 
since I became a Christian. But the Lord has shown me that white is the gate, and there's a lot of people going through it. But there is another gate, and it's very narrow. And that's where we come in. We cannot be broad. We must be narrow. Our theology must meet what God teaches. So with that, we got to look at each and every scripture, not in a broad sense, but in a very narrow sense, because that's exactly what God wants us to do. Now I've dealt with this issue, and I've asked the Lord what he has to say about it. And I've asked him a question that, that uh, was in my mind that didn't seem to fit any place. And that is, I know very well that you have said, no man will know the day nor hour nor season. But my question was, if we're in the season, would we know it? That was a totally different question. So this is what he gave me. This great white house was coming down out of heaven. And it comes down next to the foundation and stops about two feet short. And I said, Lord, why don't you go ahead and set the house down and complete it? He said, the time is not yet. The house of my, or the, the foundation of my house is rotten. Until I heal my church, the time will not be. But the house is complete. You can take that as you wish, but to me, that pretty well speaks of the end time. Everything is done except for healing his church. So that gives you an idea how far along we are. The second one that he gave me, because I was curious about my own salvation at the time, I felt very dry in the spirit. So this is what he gave me. I was standing on this riverbank, and there's a boat next to me, and there's bags of whatever in the boat. Jesus was before me. I couldn't see him very well because there's a mist between me and him, and it seemed like his back was toward me. He told me to go to the boat and open up the sack and take a strip out that represents my chosen. Take and eat. It'll be bitter. Or it should be sweet in my mouth now, but it'll be bitter in my stomach later. And take my chosen across to the other side. And instantly I was on the other side. And there was a shovel there and I started to dig the pit. And there was somebody took the shovel out of my hand and said, you would have no part of the pit. Instantly I was in this room 
with a large plate glass window overlooking this valley. It had nothing but rocks in it. And there was a, a, a clock on the wall that read quarter after 11 at night. There was other people there, but I couldn't see them. I felt their presence. And we're all waiting for that last 45 minutes. When that happened, there was a, a very bright white light, so much brighter than the sun. It's not any comparison. And you couldn't look at it. And that light came from the east and the west and went right through me. And I was looking at my hands when it did, and, and I could see the bones in my hand. And instantly I was awake. My stomach was upset. And I went into the bathroom, and I was going to flip the light on, but I didn't need to because my face glowed. Glowed like a light bulb. And there wasn't a spot or a blemish. And it faded quite readily, but it stayed around my eyes for some time. But that was the physical part but my question, or yes, it come from the Lord. This is what happened to me. And this is what he was saying to me. The kingdom of God is when you accept God. Each and every one of us comes at a different time. So when did the kingdom of God come? When you accepted it. That's when the kingdom of God started in our house, in our lies is when we accepted him. That gets about as narrow to each person as you can get. So when I accepted him, I have no fear of the pit because he cleanses of our sins. That's the important part of the gospel. When we accept him, our sins are forgiven. So, what are we doing now? It appears to me that we're trying to broaden the spectrum to include more people. When in actuality, we should be getting narrower and narrower. There are so many that reject the gospel because there is only one way. And they reject that. The only way we're going to get to heaven is to believe in Jesus Christ. In Romans 9, 10, 11, and 12, whatever it is there, that is the only way to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. That is as narrow as you're going to be able to possibly get. So in this, what we're going to have to decide whether... We're going to go broader, or should we actually become narrower? Because there is only one way. And if you read scriptures and look at what the Lord Jesus Christ said, we are going to be changed in a twinkling of an eye. And we're going to meet him in air. First, those that dead and gone, and then those that are alive come next. 
That's the type of thing that's narrow and it's going to happen. When we don't know, because God says we're not going to be able to know. So we need to be more precise in our beliefs and precise in how, how we teach the gospel. We can't be broad. We have to be precise. And there is another thought there that, that uh, I'd like to share and how we're supposed to act as Christians. When we're having all kinds of trouble with Muslims, which we still are, and I was wondering what we're going to do with these Muslim group. And to me, it looked like we either have one or two choices, convert them to Christianity or kill them before they kill us. Well, the Lord didn't like that very well, and I understand why. Because he said, love our neighbor as herself. He didn't say if he's a Muslim or an alcoholic or whatever he is. He said to love the neighbor. So this is what he gave me. This very well-dressed Christian, very big, powerful sword, seeing three Muslims, one weak, one very strong, and a woman. They were all fighting amongst themselves. And this Christian seeing this as well, we've got to do something about this. So he went and fought against him, but he had to do it in a way that would be pleasing to the world because the world was watching. Well, there was blood all over the place, arms all over different parts of the body. And he said, the, the Christian stepped back and said, there, it's complete. I have done away with the problem. All those parts reassembled themselves, and the Muslim laughed at the Christian. And then the Lord spoke. If you really want to kill a Muslim, pray for him. That is our job. That is what he put us on this earth for, is to love those that do not believe in him and to, to accept them as human beings and to love them with all of our heart and to share the gospel with them so that they too can have eternal life. So I'll leave you with this. Are we going to continue to broaden our view and to take out the millennium, actually? I don't think so. That's not what the Lord says. It speaks of a thousand-year reign. It will happen. We cannot get around that. That's what it says. We need to be specific in what we believe and how we teach the non-believer so that we can all stand on the same principle that God is the way, Jesus is the only way to, to the Father because the Father and the Son are one. And praise the Lord, he sent us the Holy Spirit that teaches us and loves us and guides us. And if we listen to him, we'll understand that there is only one way, and that's what we need to teach. Thank you very much.
Thank you, Larry. Um, I'd just like to uh, hit on something which Lee and uh, Tim had brought up just to reiterate. We are not proposing to change our statement of faith as a church. What we're dealing with here is a vote to affirm, basically approve a decision at the national level, which the national organization wants to go down this path. We don't have to change our statement of faith. What it does mean, though, is that when it comes to leadership, ordination, um, when it comes to our district and our district leadership, which is our our affiliation with all our churches up here, they have to agree with that. So basically it is about um, providing a legitimacy in the form of authority to people who would hold an amillennial or a different point of view than us. So that's what this vote is about. We will not be changing our statement of faith this year. It's not on the docket um, at all. It may come down the road at another time. Our question is, if we vote no, how will this affect our local body? And could we just become a Bible church? Okay, so the question was, if we vote no, what happens? And can we just become a Bible church? Um, If we don't agree to this statement of faith, we don't know what is next. Um, Tell me if I'm wrongly, but... Essentially, if we as all the churches in this district disapprove or sufficiently numbers of churches disapprove at this meeting in May, um, we will, in effect, be in uh, disobedience to the national, um, the national authority. So we will be without a district. We will still be churches, um, but at some point they're going to have to deal with us on the issue of noncompliance. So we will have to figure out how we are going to affiliate and also if we are going to uh, even remain in the EFCA. We will probably receive letters, um, if I'm not mistaken, we'll receive a letter saying you are no longer in compliance because your district is dissolved. We could join the CMA. Um, So is that correct? Do I have that roughly correct? Okay. So, okay, Teresa. So it's my understanding that this is taking the right of separate opinion for a person at top leadership like in the district. Um, The question was this is um, affecting the leadership of the district and, and making them have to comply with the new statement of faith. That is correct. Um, that is the question. So leadership um, and, and also at the pastoral level at some time, um, Lord willing, Tim does not get run over by a bus, okay? But if if on the subsequent pastor, if we, we have a pastor who wants to be ordained in the Evangelical Free Church, the district is the supervising body for that. They're the ones that set up the board for the interview process and the ordination process. And uh, that pastor would have to agree to the new statement of faith. Keep in mind, the new statement of faith does not preclude you from having a premillennial point of view. It just does not allow for you to disagree if you get a candidate who comes up and says, well, I'm a millennial, and this is how I think it goes. Um, they, they can't refuse that. 
of course, a church could. Um, a church would not present them because the church is the one that searches for pastor and then brings that pastor to um, the district for ordination, typically. Not always, but typically. Um, and so that would mean that, um, yeah, the district would have to accept a candidate who's post, mid, whatever, millennial, trib. Pretty much every point of view has got to be accepted. I mean, that's pretty much what it boils down to. So are there more questions? Okay. Um, it's 5.30. We, uh, we've been very thorough today. Um, I want to, I do want to thank Tim very much for taking the pro position, um, doing well, and Lee for being really thorough and pulling up scriptures I didn't know existed, as usual. It's a draining thing. Um, Teresa, did you have one more question? Yeah. Could we pray for Israel? Okay. Well, with that, I'd like to bring this to a close. Um, again, next week, we're going to meet again. Same time. I would encourage you to please come back. Maybe you'll hear something you didn't hear this time. You may have points of view that you can share with other people prior or after the meeting next time. We need to educate as many people as possible as to what this is about. It's really important we get the word out and get as many people involved in this as possible. So, Okay, with that, let's pray. Father, you are good and you are um, our God. There is no one like you. Uh, you are God worthy of all praise and honor. Uh, you, you hold all things in your hand. There's nothing outside of your grasp. There's nothing outside of your knowledge. We who trust you uh, are truly blessed. And, and with our trust in you, Father, we, we come to you with a, a really short list. We've asked you tonight for wisdom and understanding, and you're surely blessing us. We've asked you for uh, uh, peace about the matter, too, that we would all um, know that your hand is upon us, that you're working through us, that we're going to make a decision that blesses you. And last, Father, we, um, we thank you for your goodness to us to give us um, unity and, and friendship and kinship in you. And we lift up Israel to you as a nation, Father. We ask you to bless them. And there are people hurting in this congregation, Father. We prayed this morning. We echo that prayer. And we pray one more time for Shauna and Logan. We ask you to, to minister in their hearts. We ask that you provide relief to Logan. And um, we ask this for your glory and because of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.